Uh, If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 10. Uh, We're going to continue walking through Genesis this Lord's Day and looking at the entirety of chapter 10, verses 1 through 32. If you have read ahead, uh, perhaps you didn't read out loud. This is a difficult text to pronounce. There's lots of names and nations here. I was very tempted to just call on someone at random to read for us today. Uh, But I guess I will uh, do this and read through this text if you are a Hebrew student, I will offend you because I will mispronounce much, I'm sure. But, uh, but this is part of God's Word and we need to study it as such. Uh, and talking with a friend who's a pastor, not too long ago I was mentioning to him the difficulty of Genesis 10 and he said, well, how in the world did you come to preach on Genesis 10? And I said, well, I started at Genesis 1 and eventually this is where I landed. So we're going to keep walking through Genesis. And I think even here, in what we refer to as a table of nations, in the midst of names and nationalities, I think God's Spirit has something to teach us this Lord's Day. And my prayer is that that's the work that will be done. So if you would look with me to God's Word, be reminded that this is the Word of God, that the Spirit of God inspires Moses as he pins name after name after name. And he does this for a purpose. And prayerfully, in these moments this morning, we will all come to see what that purpose is. So if you'll follow along with me. Genesis 10, beginning in verse 1. This is what God says to us. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabekta. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Nephtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, and from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorhim. Canaan fathered Sidon, the firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Aridites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkpakshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, 
Gether and Mash, or Pakshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for his days on earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Elmodad, Sheleph, Asmar, Maveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzla, Dikla, Oblo, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were born the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these the nations spread abroad on earth after the flood. Let's pray for our time in God's word this morning. Father, we come to you in the name of King Jesus and we pray that you might give us understanding today. Lord, we have looked to a long list of, for the most part, unfamiliar names and peoples. And yet, Lord, I trust that in your word, even from this text, you have something to teach us. And I pray that that is the work your spirit would do. Lord, clear our minds of all the anxieties and worries and thoughts that so easily can cloud us from hearing your word. Lord, awaken us, call us through your Holy Spirit, drive us to the gospel truth that we see in your word. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is a quite, quite a list of names. If you've come this Lord's Day and perhaps been looking for some baby names, here's a long list for you. You probably won't have anyone else in the nursery with the name Art Pockshod. Although I was joking with Pam Robinson earlier and asked if they were tempted to name a child Ham. That's... It'll come to you later if it didn't already. Or maybe a Jobab. But anyways, what we see here <clears throat> is a long list of unfamiliar names. And yet I think that there here is a, a piece of a much bigger picture that we need to understand. Whenever we come to God's Word, that's what we come to first. Is What, what is the big picture of the text? What is the, the gospel truth of the Bible? And then we look to see, now how do all these pieces fit into that? And so as we come to this text, it's sort of like coming to a, a puzzle with ten or 20,000 pieces. As you come to that puzzle, perhaps you pick up one piece and it seems somewhat insignificant until you get the puzzle all put together and you realize every piece is significant. Now, this is part of God's Word, and as such, it is significant. God has something to say to us through it, and so we need to be careful that we don't come to God's Word like perhaps we come to some other books where we might skip the introduction and skip over the chapters that bore us and just look for those parts that we really want to learn about. What we see in God's Word is there is something to learn from all of it. And we have here something to learn, especially... In these two chapters, Genesis 10 and 11, if you have been with us, you know that as we walk through God's Word from Genesis 1 to Genesis 5, essentially what you have there is creation, Adam, down to Noah. And then from Genesis 6 to Genesis 9, we have Noah's story, the, the generation of Noah. And now Noah has passed. This is now the story of Noah's sons. That will take us through chapter 10 and chapter 11 before we get to Abraham, 
We'll get to Abraham in Genesis 12. And from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, we will follow Abraham and his descendants and how through those descendants, God will call this one nation to be a mighty nation for His glory. But before we get there, it's important that we look here because what we see in Genesis 10 and 11 is all of the nations. And what we see in Genesis 10 and 11 is what we've seen already is we see rebellion and we see judgment from God to the point that when you get to the end of Genesis 11, if you just don't know what's coming next, you begin to wonder, God, where is the hope? <laughs> time and time again, God has offered grace and man has rebelled, and you get to the end of chapter 11, and there's really nothing there on man's part that says something hopeful is coming. And yet something hopeful does come. That is where we will get to. But to get there, we need to first look at this text. And as we do, I think there are some things we can learn, beginning with point one there in your notes. All nations have the same beginning. What we see here in this text very clearly is that all nations have the same beginning. And this is important, especially in our day, to understand. Kind of the catchphrase of our culture today is unity in the midst of diversity. What that means is that as we celebrate how diverse people are, as we recognize the great diversity among different people, then there's unity in that celebration of how different we are. And yet, I think the Scripture prescribes unity in a different way. It says there is unity in origin. There is unity in going back to our beginning. Rather than celebrate how different we are as individuals, we recognize we are united as individuals because we all come from the same place. We all owe our lives to a Creator God who as we've seen through the Scripture through Adam and Eve, all have descended by way of Noah and his sons. And that is what we are reminded of here in this text. Genesis 9.19, we've already looked at. God said these, were the, these three excuse me, were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. We are reminded now of that as we walk through Genesis 10 and get a picture of those peoples. Now Genesis 10 is not an exhaustive list. Every single child, every single nation is not listed in Genesis 10. In fact, you'll find there are 70 nations here. But I believe that number 70 has a very important significance. And we'll get to that towards the end of our message. But for now, it's important to realize we see here a picture of the nations beginning with the sons of Japheth. There in those first five verses, it talks about these sons. And the commentary we're given on them in verse 5 is, From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. This speaks of a dispersion. This speaks of a spreading out. The question that may immediately come to mind is, well, wait a second, how, how do we get from Noah to different languages and clans and nations? Well, as the story unfolds, we will see that as we get to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. But for now, it's important to recognize that from these sons, and specifically here from Japheth, you have this spreading out around the world. Specifically from Japheth, the coastland people. Now, in the Scripture, when you refer, when you see reference to the coastland people, what Moses is essentially saying here is the uttermost parts of the earth. 
as far as you can imagine, those islands way out there, these, this is how far people have spread. Moses, in essence, is saying of Japheth, from him came people who went to the perimeters. They went to the boundaries. They went to the farthest reaches. And what we see here in this text is that God's heart is even for those who are the farthest reaches. Even for those on the outer boundaries. Because while we will see God choose Abraham and his family and have a great plan for the Israelites to bring glory to his name, we will see that God has not forgotten these other nations. And when God speaks of his redemptive purposes, he often includes these nations in those purposes. For example, let me read to you what we read from the prophet Isaiah who says this in Isaiah 42. If you know much of Isaiah, you know that much of Isaiah's work is prophecy concerning the Messiah. And Isaiah 42 is one of those. It's talking about the Lord's chosen servant. It's talking about Jesus Christ, that He will be the Messiah, that He will come and He will reign. Notice specifically what God says through Isaiah about the Messiah. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God is saying through Christ, all things will be made right. The gospel will go out to the nations. And people are longing for this. We know this because he says in verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. That word coastlands is the same Hebrew word that we see in Genesis 10. It's referring to those descendants of Japheth who have gone out to the uttermost ends of the earth. Isaiah refers to them some 14 times in his prophecy. And the most part of those prophecies are the same. It is saying these people in the far stretches of the earth, they long for redemption from their king. But they need to hear the gospel truth in order to respond to the gospel truth. And that is why God's people, even Israel, were called to be a light to the nations. That is why even we today are called to be a light to the nations. As a reminder, we live among some 160, or excuse me, 196 nations in the world today. Just over 7 billion people, close to 3 billion of them live in unreached people groups. That means they have little to no access to the gospel. And yet God in His Word says His heart is for them. And that means our heart needs to be for them too. And we need to understand, just as Isaiah's prophecy says, there are people in the world with no access to the gospel whose hearts are longing to respond to the gospel. And that is why we hear story after story after story from those on the forefront of missions talking about as they sit down and share the gospel with someone from an underage people group who has no biblical knowledge, who has no knowledge of the gospel, they respond because the Spirit of God is at work within them longing for redemption. And just this last opportunity I had to go to Malaysia, I had the chance to spend a couple of the days we were there with a, a young man who I'll just refer to as H because he is, he is from a closed country. He's from an area of the world where there is not a strong gospel witness, where it's illegal to share the gospel. And God has brought him now to Malaysia. And now he is there. And some of his best friends in the country are Christians. And as I talked to H, he told me about how he, he has rejected the Islam 
that he grew up in. He, he knows that it's wrong and it's a lie. And he wants to learn about Christianity. His words to me were this. I know from my new friends that Christianity is true. And I want to know more about how to become a Christian. Why would he say that? Because God's Spirit is working within him, drawing him to repentance as he is so many in the world today. A number of years ago, I was in West Africa. I was there on a trip to simply do Bible study and discipleship with local believers in a village where up to a few years before, there were no Christians at all. 20,000 people in this village in West Africa. Not one gospel witness for generations until God placed a missionary couple there who began to share the gospel. And through that gospel witness, people began to respond to the gospel. And I was now coming in as part of a team to just do Bible study. And they were so hungry for the truth of God's Word. Their souls were longing to learn from it. And I'll never forget one man who was with us for several days. And around day four, day three or four of our time there, I noticed that he wasn't there. And, and I asked about him. I was concerned about why he wasn't there. His friends told me, well, you see, uh, each day he has to go out and gather enough food to feed him and his wife and his children. And, and when, when you guys came, he made an agreement with their family that they just would not eat so he could learn God's Word. But after three or four days, his children were so hungry, he, he had to go get food for them. But, but he'll be back. Can you imagine that hunger? It exists. It may be hard to believe in the culture we live in where where. Bible study in church seems to be a matter of convenience and scheduling. And well, the kids have this, so we can't make this. There are places in the uttermost parts of the world where God's Spirit is at work drawing men and women and children to repentance. And we see that here in Genesis 10. These coastland people, these people who were spread out all over, God has a plan for them because God has a heart for the nations. And we should as well. Point two. The nations exist to bring glory to God and not to themselves. The nations exist to bring glory to God and not to themselves. Beginning in verse 6 down through verse 20, you have an overview of the sons here. Beginning with the sons of Ham. You'll remember Ham's name from Genesis 9. Ham is the son who brought shame to his father Noah. Noah sinned. Noah was in shame. Ham had the opportunity to cover his father's shame. Rather than doing that, as you'll remember from last week, he delighted in exposing the sin of his father. His father wakes up, he realizes this, and he gives a curse. Yet that curse is not directly on Ham. We talked about why that may be. I think the primary reason is because God has blessed Ham and Noah's not going to curse the one that God has blessed. And so Noah curses Ham's son, Canaan, one of his four sons, his youngest son. In that curse, he says that Canaan and his descendants will essentially be servants. They will be slaves, specifically to the houses of Shem and Japheth. That's the picture we have of Ham's son Canaan. And yet, as we read about Ham's son Canaan and his others, other sons, we don't see servants or slaves here. We see kingdoms being built. We see prosperity. For example, we see here in verses 8-12, through 12, Cush and his son Nimrod. 
We read about Nimrod. The commentary here is that he was a, a mighty hunter. A mighty man on the earth. When you look to that word mighty in the Hebrew, it means one who magnifies himself. That, that gives us a better understanding that Nimrod was not living for the glory of God. He was living for the glory of himself. If we use that word about God, we use it rightly. Why? Because God deserves glory. God is a mighty God who brings glory to Himself. When we use that word about man, it speaks of the depravity of man because it says man is trying to bring glory to Himself. Man is putting the spotlight on Him. And that is what we see here of Nimrod. We have the first mention of the, in the biblical text of the word kingdom. Except it's not God's kingdom that's being built. It's man's kingdom. It's Nimrod's kingdom. It says Nimrod was a mighty hunter. And yet what we see he probably hunted most was men as he enslaved them for his purposes. Martin Luther made this point in his commentary where he said that Nimrod being a hunter probably speaks more about his ability to hunt men as a warrior than it does about his ability to hunt animals. He was ruthless in building a kingdom for his own glory. And so what we then see coming through this line is nations that we will find in the biblical text are wicked and exist for their glory and not for God's glory. Many of these may be unfamiliar, but there are names that should jump out to you if you're a student of the Scripture. For example, verse 10, Babel. We'll learn about Babel in Genesis 11. Babel is a city that comes from Nimrod's kingdom that exists for its own glory. And God will cause a great dispersion because of their sin and their rebellion. Nineveh in verse 11. If you know the story of Jonah, you know that Nineveh is a great, great city, but Nineveh is a wicked city. It is so wicked that Jonah looks at it and says, I would rather they perish in hell then come to faith and repentance. And he doesn't even want to go there. And God has to put him in the belly of a whale and spit him out to get him there. Can you imagine being that determined to not tell someone about God? It's because of their wickedness. Because of their sin. We see the mention in verse 14 of the Philistines. We know the Philistines, for example, from David's story. David, a young man, goes to visit his brothers who are in battle. They're there fighting on behalf of the anointed king Saul, and yet they are cowering at the thought of facing the Philistines who are mocking the very idea of God. It goes on, you see mention of the Canaanites. We looked and talked about them some last week. Specifically, talks of their settlements in Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know much about Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that you're probably not going to name your new neighborhood Sodom or Gomorrah. These are wicked places. These are evil people. And they come from this line of men who are building nations for their own glory instead of for the glory of God. And a question that then may rise for us is this. If this family is supposed to be cursed, why are they prospering so much? I mean, the Canaanites are supposed to be enslaved, and yet they and their kin seem to be on top of the world. In fact, when you read through Genesis 10, there's just not a whole lot here about Shem and Japheth. Yeah, you know, Japheth, he got some descendants who went to some islands. 
But, ham, these were mighty men who built nations. Do you ever look to things like that? Do you ever look at your own life and wonder, God, why do the wicked prosper? And yet those who seem to walk with you suffer. The math doesn't add up very well for us. It didn't add up for Job. Job said, the tents of robbers are at peace and those who provoke God are secure. And Job wrestled with God over this. It didn't add up for Habakkuk who lived in a very wicked and sinful time. And he asked of God, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? It didn't add up for the prophet Jeremiah who said, why? Why, Lord, does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Christian, have you ever asked questions like this? God, I've tried to do things the right way, and yet this one who seems to curse your name, they get the promotion. Why, Lord, do those who seem so far from you seem to have it all together? Why do they have the healthy child? Why do they have what appears to be such a great marriage? Why do they seem to never struggle financially? And in the midst of that, Lord, why do your people seem to suffer? Why are our prayer chains filled with cancers and sicknesses and death and disease? Why? I think this text may remind us, in part, the only answer I think we have for that question, and that is this, that perhaps God's plans and God's purposes are a much bigger picture than you and I see in the moment. Because while it seems that there's this great house being built, we know that it is from the house of Shem that the Messiah will come. We know that there's a king who will come and he will not come through Ham or Nimrod. He will come through Shem and he will be Christ our king and he will make all things right to the point where we get to the book of Revelation and it says no more tears, no more suffering. All will be made right. Perhaps this text is a reminder to us that our perspective is so short-sighted sometimes we need to step back And see that God is sovereign and God has a plan. And that plan is good. And for those who have come to Him through faith and repentance in Christ, He has not promised you health. He's not promised us finances. He has not promised us ease. But He has promised us the blessing of eternal life in and through Christ Jesus. You look through these names and the question, where are they now? Outside of Genesis 10, have you heard the name Nimrod? Do you know what it means? You look it up in a dictionary and it says this. Nimrod, noun, a person regarded as silly, foolish, stupid. This mighty man who built a kingdom for himself bears the name that we now put on a fool. God will prevail. Nations will cease. Mighty men will die. 
But God's plans will go forth. And God will be glorified. Point three. God reunites the nations and a new kingdom through Christ. All these things come back together. You look at verses 21 through 32 and you see here an outline of Shem and his descendants. I've already mentioned this is not an exhaustive list. In fact, in Genesis 11 we'll come back to Shem and his descendants and see many who are not named here. But there's a purpose for those who are named. There's a reason, I believe, in the text. When you look at Genesis 10, there are 70 nations here. I don't think that's a coincidence or an accident. I think under the inspiration of the Spirit, as Moses is listing out these nations, he's specifically mentioning one that God has put in his heart so that they might number 70. 70 nations coming from Noah. You see that number again in Genesis. You get to the end of Genesis, <clears throat> to Abraham's descendants. And Moses then, carefully and methodically, helps us see at the end of Genesis that Abraham's descendants number 70. I think that number is a bookend, and I think it's there to tell us something. That we have here 70 nations who for the most part will rebel against God and be dispersed around the globe. But God will raise one up from them who will bring glory to His name and who will be chosen and He will have a purpose for Him. And through Him, He raises up, Genesis tells us, Moses tells us here, 70 descendants. And I think God is telling us something about the work of the Gospel in the nations, about the work of the Gospel in our life. And I think what that message is, is this. God gives us a new kingdom and He brings us into a new nation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You read through this list of all these different nations and you can go through all types of anthropology and you can see how this nation's connected to this one and you will find some that still exist today and you will find some that no longer exist. But you read through God's Word you find there's one nation that will always exist. It is the kingdom of those who are in Christ Jesus. And God is working through His people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Not so that He might raise up 196 nations, but that He might raise up one nation for those in Christ who belong to Him. And He is our King eternally. That's why Romans 4, Paul says to this Jew and Gentile audience, Abraham, who is the father of us all, if you're a Christian here, that means Abraham's your father. Now genetically, that might not make a lot of sense. But in Christ, it makes perfect sense. Because you have descended from Abraham through your faith in Christ. And that is where your citizenship now lies. Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. So what does all this mean? It means that nations will come and go, but God's kingdom will stand. It means that, 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 that Christ's church will stand. I am so tired of the reports and the statistics that bemoan low church attendance and, and cry about how many churches are shutting their door as if God doesn't have sovereign control in a plan. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. 
There may be a great sifting. There may be many who leave who were never ours to begin with. But do not doubt the plan or the hand of God. He will prevail. And as He does, we will find people from all the nations who will find rest in Christ, who will have citizenship in Him, and we can be secure in that. We can be reminded from this text today that perhaps where you are today, you you wrestle with that question. God, why are wicked people prospering? Perhaps even this week you have noted those who seem so far from God seem to have it all together. And as much as you don't want to be, you may even be envious at times. You be reminded of this, Christian. What they have will not last. What you have will last for eternity. Be comforted in Christ. Be reminded from His Word. He may not bring you prosperity the way you want it, but He will bring you prosperity the way you need it. And it will come eternally through His Son, Christ Jesus. And that is why we are called to go to the ends of the earth to tell those who are sitting at this moment waiting to hear the gospel truth about the great glory of Christ. These names will pass. His name will reign forever. If you would, pray with me in that name. Father, we thank You for the reminder from Your Word of who You are, that You have a plan for the nations, and that while we may see even in this text wicked people prospering, that at the end of the day, it is You who will prosper. It is You who have a kingdom set aside for Your people. Lord, we can search and seek after all the things of this world, but be utterly lost But Lord, we can be found in Christ. And whether we have anything of this world or not is insignificant compared to the riches that we have in Christ Jesus our King. Father, I pray for any here today who is outside of the kingdom of Christ. Any here who is yet to repent and place their faith in our Lord Jesus that You would work and call and drive them to a response to the Gospel. And Lord, I pray for so many here who have responded, Lord, that they would be encouraged this morning. You have a plan. You are working that plan out. We may not understand it. Father, we see the big picture when we look to your word. Christ will reign eternally. We may suffer for a time, but we will reign with Christ, our brother, in a new kingdom one day. Between this day and that, Lord, Help us to walk faithfully, to stand on the gospel truth. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.